Kia ora Central Vineyard, it's Dan here. Um, we're going to get into the podcast in just a moment, but this is just a quick message to say that this will be our last of the Been Here, Done That series, and next week we begin our Advent series. Our Advent series is called Advent Together. You're going to be able to read it, you're going to be able to listen to it, and as of next week, you're also going to be able to watch it. We're going to be firing up the old video machine again and uh, filming, so if you would like to be able to watch, you can do that. So join in next Sunday for Advent Together, coming to you in three different formats, readable, listenable, and watchable. Right, on with being here, done that. To the saints of Central Vineyard. Today I want to tell you a story of the Confessing Church of Germany in the lead up to World War II. And though the topic is in itself quite heavy, the lesson is one of encouragement, as I find it puts courage into me, and I hope it does with you too. Just a heads up as we begin today's epistle. I'm going to let the story do a lot of the heavy lifting, so buckle in for that. Also, let me just front end this now that the point of this story is not to look and compare our moment to Nazi Germany, though I will address that near the end, but to learn the lesson of fidelity to Jesus from those who lived it for real and in a truly costly fashion. All right, on with the story. On the 22nd of August, 1934, on Fano, a small island off the coast of Denmark, a conference of ecumenical church leaders were meeting together to consider the future of their churches and how they would work amongst the growing pressure of Germany's political landscape. President Hindenburg had recently died and Chancellor Hitler and his criminal administration had taken complete power of Germany as Führer, politically turning Germany into a one-party dictatorship fully committed to Nazism. Delegates at the conference included bishops and pastors from all over Germany and Europe, and there was a growing sense of anxiety in the air. Leading devotions for the week was a 28-year-old German named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The goal of the conference was outlined at his first devotion, which participant Marguerite Hoffer recalled, quote, At our first devotion, we were urgently told, as the watchword for our entire conference, that our work cannot and must not consist of anything but listening together to what the Lord says, and in praying together that we might hear aright. Listening in faith to the words of the Bible, and hearing one another as listeners who obey. This is the core of all ecumenical work. 
Another participant, E.C. Blackman, said, quote, Bonhoeffer reminded us that our primary objective was not to commend our own views, national or individual, but to hear what God would say to us. A week later, on the 28th of August, Bonhoeffer preached at the morning worship service. And after a week of devotional commendations to seek God before anything else, he took Psalm 85 verse 5 as his text. Quote, I listen carefully to what God the Lord is saying, for he speaks peace to his faithful people. Bonhoeffer then went on to speak of the ultimate concern that he had for the future, peace. During this time, everyone knew what he was talking about. Though Germany invading Poland was still many years off, Europe was already on the tip of war at this moment due to Germany threatening Austria and Mussolini in Italy threatening to invade Ethiopia. With his sermon, Bonhoeffer seized the moment to speak to his fellow church leaders that their first call was to God's commandments and to not support war of any kind. He urged them to become the prophetic voice in the world today as those who spoke of another way. Bonhoeffer appealed and courageously urged the delegates, quote, There is no way to peace along the way of safety, for peace must be dared. It is itself the great venture and can never be safe. Peace is the opposite of security. To demand guarantees is to want to protect oneself. Peace means giving oneself completely to God's commandment, wanting no security, but in faith and obedience, laying the destiny of the nations in the hand of Almighty God, not trying to direct it for selfish purposes. Battles are won, not with weapons, but with God. They are won when the way leads to the cross. As Bonhoeffer looked at the rising tide of evil emerging in the world around him and listened to the word of God, his conclusion was, this will be a costly time to be a true Christian. So what was going on that led to this moment in Fano? What was so costly and what came of it? Well, firstly, let's back up a year and a bit. In 1933, Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany, and with that came the arrival of the Nazi Party into power. Now, he wasn't Fuhrer yet, but still the Nazi regime very quickly consolidated its gains across Germany, seeking to Nazify every level of German life. Most of the Protestant Christians in Germany, and the German population in 1933 was about two-thirds Protestant, the vast majority of them belonged to the German Evangelical Church, which was sort of a conglomeration of several different theological traditions. One of the things that the church was interested in at this time was forming some sort of a larger national church. And the group that was pushing most strongly for this was a group called the Deutsche Christen, the German Christians. The German Christian movement had begun in the 1920s and begun to coalesce around issues of nationalism, ethnicity, and anti-Semitism. So it was only natural that this was the group that in 1933, when Hitler came to power, took the Nazi ideology and ran with it. The Nazis and the German Christians initially worked well together. And one of the first things the movement tried to do was to implement the Nazi anti-Semitic racial laws within the church. In the context of the church, 
It meant the appealing to remove all the Jewish texts from the Old Testament and de-Judaizing the New Testament. It also resulted in the so-called Arian paragraph. This distinguished between baptized Christians who could prove that they were of Arian ancestry against baptized Christians who had a Jewish grandmother or that at some point someone in their family had converted. Let's just check in on what is happening there. This sect of the German church were seeking to remove the lineage of the Hebrew people, that is Israel, the people of God, from their Bibles, their own church history, and for the future. Even in these early days of Nazi rule, the German Christians movement was partnering itself fully to the ideology that would become the seedbed of the Holocaust, the extermination of the Jews, and the establishing of a pure and elite race of pure people. They started to enact this in their own churches. So if you had Jewish heritage, you were barred. And to go to university and study theology, a student had to prove their pure Aryan racial purity. Now we've heard about overreach in this pandemic. And the history books show a moment where the German Christians overreached too. At a massive rally in the Berlin Sportpalast, at a great hall with Nazi flags and banners declaring one Reich, one people, one church. 20,000 gathered to hear the leader of the Berlin German Christians, Reinhold Krauss. Using crude language, Krauss demanded that the German church must once and for all rid itself of all Jewishness, not just removing it from the text, but also that, quote, the New Testament must be revised to present Jesus corresponding entirely with the demands of National Socialism, end quote. And it must no longer present, quote, exaggerated emphasis on the crucified Christ, end quote. To Krauss, the cross was just too depressing. Germany needed a message of hope and victory. As if this wasn't all far enough, his final call was that every German pastor must take an oath of allegiance to Hitler and the Aryan paragraph should be used to expel every Jewish church member across Germany. And the response from the crowd? Sustained applause. Now it's very important to say that this was definitely an outlier having their moment in the sun. A minority briefly getting a very large platform. But Krauss used it for all it was worth. This was not the majority view of the Christians living in Germany, but this sect were making the loudest noise in the rise of Nazi power. And they were being reported to the rest of Germany and around the world, with such fanatical displays taking center stage. What was the rest of the church to do? It's at this point that we arrive at the beginning of a group called the Pastors Emergency League. Can we just take a minute to acknowledge how absolutely cool that name is? A group who started to organize the other churches of Germany and called out the abhorrent relationship that was emerging. Led by Martin Naimola, a decorated submarine captain of the First World War who entered ministry in the 1920s and became a pastor in Berlin of a very prominent church. And assisted by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who we met earlier, this league of pastors began to speak out against the growing distortion of basic theological truths and the Aryan paragraph. The problem was, by opposing the German Christians movement, they were also speaking out about the Nazi regime. 
Now in late May 1934, the leaders of the Pastors Emergency League held a synod in Barman, and they wrote the now famous Barman Declaration. And with that document, they began what became the origin point of the Confessing Church. This declaration was their confession, stating what the German church had always believed, grounding it into the scriptures, and differentiating it from the bastardized theology that had been coming from the German Christians movement, repudiating the anti-Semitism and the other heresies. The principal author of the document was Karl Barth, one of Germany's finest theologians of the 20th century, and finished it weighed in at 27 points of confessional statements. In early June, the Barman Declaration was printed in the London Times. It announced to the world that there was still a faithful German evangelical church stating their own rejection of the Nazi regime German Christians movement. Bonhoeffer would go at great length to say that the declaration was not a declaration away from the ecumenical German church because it was not them who had broken away, but the Nazi German Christians who had broken away with their warped doctrines. To the confessors, they saw themselves as the true remnant of Orthodox German Christianity. Though the next 10 years would be a turbulent time for the Church of Germany, those who formed the Confessing Church had made their intentions known. We choose fidelity to Christ, not the evil regime. They chose to be the minority. Their counterparts were parading and marching, putting on a public show of big meetings and fanfare with flags, propaganda and banners. But the Confessing Church simply stated their confession and then set about faithfully living it counterculturally within the Nazi regime that they found themselves in. Which brings us to where we started. A few months later, Bonhoeffer was in Fano, representing part of the German delegation, and as we started with, would then speak of the courageous call to seeking God first, and a church who would faithfully walk the way of peace, even though costly. And costly it would be. Over the next decade, Many of the confessing church would be spied on, arrested, imprisoned, interrogated, beaten, and killed. Pastors would disappear. Leaders would be caught hiding Jews and shot or jailed. Naimola would make it through the war in a concentration camp. Bonhoeffer would be hung just before the war ended. And so in summary, what was happening here? Well, maybe these quotes from a Bonhoeffer letter sums up well the intent. Quote, it must be made quite clear, terrifying though that it is, that we are immediately faced with the decision, national socialist or Christian. The restoration of the church must surely depend on a life of uncompromising discipleship, following Christ according to the Sermon on the Mount. I believe the time has come to gather people to do this. What a story of that uncompromising church and their costly discipleship. Now, in recent weeks, I have heard some commentary that our nation is, quote, like Nazi Germany, end quote. As a pastor who has spent several years reading Bonhoeffer deeply and fascinated by the German confessing church and its story, I wish to add my voice calmly and quietly but make this clear from my perspective. No, it is not. To compare our government dealing with a global health crisis, which they did not make or choose, 
to that of an ideology and regime that sought out the unjust extermination of millions of people just because they were of a certain ethnicity is nothing short of disgusting to me. And part of why I wanted to tell the story today was to properly remind us of this atrocity from history, of which we are historically foolish to compare. Our moment of the church here in our nation is not the same. We are being asked to fight a virus by playing our part in a greater health response as servants to this just cause with our fellow citizens. We're not suffering within an unjust dictatorship from state persecution. And while we cannot gather, again, due to a sensible public health measure, thank God there is no overreach into our Christian doctrines and scriptures or how we worship. And with that said, let me now draw to the best wisdom in here today. This is a lesson of fidelity to what is true and right. Fidelity means to replicate something authentically to the original, to represent it today accurately and faithfully. It's important to remember that discipleship to Jesus is lived facing backwards, faithful to what Jesus has already taught, done and shown, and yet also moving forwards, living it into the future. The church must always navigate the future with fidelity to the Jesus who has been because it can always look backwards to the Gospels to see what to replicate. Now, fidelity is easy until there is the pressure of opposition or another way offered. The cost comes when that way of life that Jesus calls us to live does not fit our current cultural moments, norms, and majority. For the confessing church, it was an evil, racist, and extreme regime. For us today, it is the conforming to a digital age of information and formation where Netflix or Meta or our social media accounts disciple us more than the Bible, or the individualistic, materialistic, and hedonistic flow of a culture that wants to avoid suffering at all costs, have everything we want, and only pursue a good life by what feels good to ourselves. Or it's the live your truth motto, that defines things on our terms or our perspectives, rather than, as the confessing church confessed, were to be defined by listening to Christ as truth first and foremost. Today, there's lots of noise around our nation at the moment, lots of opinions and fanfare, lots of information and frustration. And you might think, what am I supposed to listen to amongst this moment today? Well, to live with fidelity, Let's go back to Farno and hear that text from Bonhoeffer again. I listen carefully to what God the Lord is saying, for he speaks peace to his faithful people. Psalm 85 verse 5. Or as point 11 of the Barman Declaration Confession said, 8.11, Jesus Christ, as he is attested for us in Holy Scripture, is the one word of God which we have to hear and which we have to trust and obey in life and in death. So when compromises could be made, and even though it might cost greatly, consider the confessors who courageously yet peacefully live their confession as servants in action. 
When all around them was a growing tide of evil and destruction, of hate and racism, there is a story of the confessing church passing around hats during their secret gatherings to put money, identity cards and passbooks in as an offering to help Jews who were hiding in Berlin. The passes were then forged for the Jews to be able to pass as legal citizens. And for their part in this, some members were tried and shot. But some Jews survived the war from their actions. That is a costly offering that many of us, God willing, may never need to pay. But we pay costs in different ways. We all live with pressures of another way around us. I wonder, what might yours be at the moment? Where is the beckon to compromise on the true and the orthodox things of the way of Jesus? And what are you doing to remain faithful and to live with fidelity? Maybe it's choosing to not gossip or speak bitterly. Or maybe it's choosing to not sleep around and pursue sexual abstinence. Or perhaps it's to offer radical forgiveness and grace. Perhaps it's giving generously rather than hoarding and amassing wealth. It could be in stopping work once a week to Sabbath when everyone else in the office won't. Perhaps it's in being quiet and slow to get heated amongst a nation that's getting louder and more frustrated. It could be something else altogether. Not giving in to the beckon of compromise. That is our costly discipleship. So may you have fidelity to Christ and His way. With love, Dan. Volk und seinen Getreuen.